Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Do you believe the case numbers that are coming out of China today? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, the short answer is no. Uh, you know, my, my sense is it's just stupefying to think that a country of 1.4 billion could have, you know, that that few cases. But I also don't think it's off by, you know, 10x or 20x or something like that. You, you know there's got to be more than that. But it does seem in my mind that um, it has been very effective. And they are ahead of the game. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Yeah, yeah. How would you characterize a couple of things? One is how she has played this politically at home. And if this has weakened him in any fundamental way. I think how I would characterize uh, his sort of position is that I would say it has been uh, dented by, by the crisis. But I do not think that it fundamentally gets in the way of uh, his willingness and ability to both seek and get a third term. I do think uh, there's an Achilles heel here. In my mind, the weakness uh, or the vulnerability he has is at the last party Congress, he told us all that China's entered this new era, right, of uh, socialism under his leadership. And that was supposed to bring enhanced governance, uh, you know, sort of smooth functioning of the country, a uh, knowledge-based economy, and, you know, basically an asymptotic rise to superpowerdom. If you look back over the crisis, you have to say objectively that there were certain periods and, and maybe even continuing where China looked a lot more like a third world country again than a rising superpower. And that, I think, is uh, a potential vulnerability of his. He's staked his consolidation of power and all these things he's done on this idea that he's you know, ushering in this new era. A smart group of motivated people in the leadership could try to take that on. Um, I do not see that happening anytime soon, but I do think it's a, a possible window. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Chris Johnson is the Senior Advisor to the President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington, D.C. Chris is a former head of China Affairs at CSIS, a former top CIA analyst on China, and one of our nation's premier experts on the country. Chris has been on our show several times before, and today he joins us to talk about China and the coronavirus. Chris, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is always good to have you on the show. Great to be back, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk about China and COVID-19. There is, I think, a tremendous amount of ground to cover here. So let's get started. And I think it's always good to start at the beginning. And let me start by saying, I know you're not a medical expert, but what's your take on the debate on the origins of the virus? You know, what do we know? What don't we know? And most important from a China expert's perspective, what is your sense of why this question is so important? Yeah. No, I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're, none of us are medical experts, but feel increasingly sometimes compelled to play one on TV or <laughs> on a podcast. Uh, look, I think there seems to be a universal consensus that the disease, number one, wasn't man-made, and two, therefore, is not a, a bioweapon. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any dispute on that uh, in the scientific community or, or even in the government community. And the statement by the Director of National Intelligence Offices, uh, in my mind, just put a very uh, serious period exclamation point on that. So I think there's no question you know, as to that. So that's what we do know, I think, is that it was not that. Um, what we don't know, uh, I think, is exactly where it came from. And here, obviously, the debate seems to be between, was it uh, from the wet market uh, in Wuhan, or could it have leaked from this Wuhan Institute of Virology? And on that score, from what I can see, there appears to be no clear consensus, and at least some data, I guess you could say, on both sides of the coin. And that said, I'm pretty sure there's no smoking gun uh, on the um, on the issue of did it leak from the the lab? Because in my estimation, if the administration had that information, they probably would find some way to get it out into the press. And so I don't think we see that. Um, there has been these allegations about pressure. Uh, you know, my own uh, opinion is that it seems like the intelligence community is doing its best to do its job objectively in the way it's supposed to do it. Um, but clearly, the president does here seem to see some political advantage in being able to, to claim this, and that might come in handy for him down the road. Um, on the issue of, you know, is it important uh, and uh, does it matter, I guess we could say, uh, my own opinion, which might be uh, somewhat out of uh, track with the conventional wisdom, is maybe, but really I think the going after the lab scenario seems in my mind to be barking up the wrong tree. I, I think the better question is how the government handled it, and I hope we'll address that um, as they are responsible, in, in my mind, at some level for that. And um, uh, with regard to you know the other issues related to the lab scenario, I don't think we're ever going to find definitive proof. And it doesn't change the fact that this thing has gotten out and is now global and, and destroying lives everywhere. Yeah. So let me get to the, the handling question in a second, but just one more question about the origin. So these wet markets, uh -huh. how prevalent are they in China?
China and how big a deal would it be to get rid of them? Uh, they're very prevalent in China and um, they're all over the country. Uh, they serve as a major food source for people. And I think it would be quite difficult to get rid of them, but the government could do it um, if it wanted to. I mean, one of the challenges, unfortunately, is that with Chinese culture, there are a lot of medicinal, um, uh, supposed medicinal, uh, you know, sort of benefits to, to eating certain exotic animals and so on. This has been a longstanding problem. We have seen the government actually move to push to close these. Uh, we'll see if they're actually able to do that. I think it would be a, a very massive change, but, you know, for, for most Chinese if they did that. Okay. So let's move then to the handling. So, you know, in the early weeks and then later, what did the Chinese government get right? What did they get wrong? Are there things they were trying to cover up? Are there still things they're trying to cover up? Can you kind of walk us through that? Sure. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think this is really the crux of the issue. Uh, and I just make several points here. The, the first is that uh, a system like China's or really any authoritarian system is never incentivized to report bad news up the chain, right? I mean, we just know that that is a chronic problem for, well, uh, even for democratic governments occasionally, but certainly for authoritarian governments. Um, and the approach that Xi Jinping has taken uh, in terms of centralizing power in his hands, making himself chair of everything, as he's often referred to, um, and just creating a sort of pervasive sense of fear among officials across the country. That certainly didn't help the situation. And uh, then, of course, this was all starting to brew right on the eve of Chinese New Year, you know, which is Christmas and Thanksgiving and <laughs> New Year all wrapped into one for Chinese. It's exceptionally important. And with Xi Jinping having given a series of these big meetings and speeches on guarding against various forms of risk, if you're a local official and you see this outbreak, you know, coming to play into your territory, um, you're going to hope it goes away. And I think we we definitely saw um, a lot of that. Um, and the most important aspect, I think, is what we have seen to now be what I would call very inconvenient six days uh, from the 14th of January to the 20th, where these leaked documents that we've seen in the press make it very clear that they knew they had a big problem, a very dangerous situation on their hands, and yet they did not alert either their own public or really the, the global community, and they continued to allow large gatherings to take place um, and so on. And, you know, so to the degree there's a smoking gun in terms of Chinese Communist Party culpability and all this, in my mind, that's it, not the leakage of, uh, of a potential leakage from the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology. So I, I think that's where really where the focus should be if, if, if that's where we're going to uh, going to put that emphasis. In terms of the what they did right, I actually it seems to me the lockdown of Wuhan seems in the end to have been right and has proven an yeah. effective strategy in other countries. Uh, I was just listening this morning actually to last week's podcast with uh, Olivier, Olivier Blanchard and you know he seemed to make the case that for an economic perspective it, it, there's no doubt it worked and that that debate should be over and, and I would agree with that. Um, in terms of what they might be trying to cover up, uh, you know my sense is it's less uh, a particular issue of covering up than rather a desperate uh, search to change the narrative, right? They uh, want to change the narrative from this is the place where this thing originated and then foisted it onto the world and caused a global catastrophe to China is uh, a fellow victim uh, of the virus and is now through various multilateral means, emphasis multilateral, um, trying to uh, show the world that it can help and be supportive. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about the international situation uh, later. Mm -hmm. 
So do you believe the case numbers that are coming out of China today? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, the short answer is no. Uh, you know, my, my sense is it's just stupefying to think that a country of 1.4 billion could have, you know, that that few cases. But I also don't think it's off by, you know, 10x or 20x or something like that. You know, my sense is there's a lot of challenges with the same dynamic I highlighted earlier with, you know, if, if, if you're in a local territory and you've been clean for X amount of days, the last thing you want to do is show a, a spike, you know, in cases. And so all, the only place that we've seen, you know, those sort of spikes are largely places that are so-called imported cases, like in the Northeast with Russia, for example, in Heilongjiang province, and down in Guangdong with some concerns about um, folks uh, from Africa. You, you know, there's got to be more than that. But it does seem in my mind that um, it has been very effective. And they are ahead of the game. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Yeah, yeah. All right. So politics, how, how would you characterize a couple of things? One is, how she has played this politically at home, and if this has weakened him in any fundamental way. And is there in your mind, Chris, a scenario by which this could bring him down? Hmm. Yeah, uh, excellent questions. And there's a lot of uh, speculation and theorizing on that. Um, I think how I would characterize uh, his sort of position is that I would say it has been uh, dented by, by the crisis. And um, I'll come back to what I mean by by dented, but I do not think that it fundamentally gets in the way of uh, his willingness and ability to both seek and get a third term in 2022. And why do I say that? Um, several reasons, but I think you know my approach to analyzing Chinese domestic politics. The first principle in my mind has always been look to personnel. Um, and, and that's the key indicator of how a leader is faring. And here I think she has used the crisis um, very, very successfully in terms of uh, putting key allies of his in important positions. So if we just look at what's happened um, in the province of Hubei, which is where the outbreak was majorly focused, um, he took a guy who was associated with another senior leader and replaced him with one of his own allies. And likewise, in the, in the city, uh, party secretaryship of Wuhan. So those are certainly important uh, developments. He also sent one of his top uh, up-and-coming officials, Chen uh, Yixin, down there to sort of oversee matters and so on. So, you know, he used his network, I think, very effectively. And now these people, if they help uh, Hubei and Wuhan, respectively, come out of this relatively well, they're going to fly up the uh, up the uh, ranks of the leadership. I mean, certainly the uh, the new party secretary, Ying Yong, has a great shot at the Politburo um, in 2022 if, if he's able to to manage that. Um, and then perhaps um, even more interestingly, he also in recent weeks seems to be taking a tighter grip on the legal and security apparatus in China. And this is very important mm -hmm. because uh, at the last party Congress in 2017, this is the one you know, kind of key lever of power that he really didn't get full control of. The 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 that whole apparatus is basically overseen by a former um, ally of of one of the former leaders, Sun Ching Hong. Uh, it's the one area, as I mentioned, that uh, he didn't really tighten his grip, and now we see him slowly doing that. And it's important for two reasons: one, because he didn't get it the first time; two, if you're worried about you know future after effects of this. Um, 
then you know the security services is something you want to have a good handle on. Right, so right. you know collectively, I think that means then that he's doing very well. But I do think uh, there's an Achilles heel here. You know, you asked about could he be brought down? Uh, in my mind, the weakness uh, or the vulnerability he has is at the last party Congress, he told us all that China's entered this new era, right, of uh, socialism under his leadership, and that was supposed to bring enhanced governance. Uh, you know, sort of smooth functioning of the country, a uh, knowledge-based economy, and, you know, basically an asymptotic rise to superpowerdom. If you look back over the crisis, you have to say objectively that there were certain periods and, and maybe even continuing where China looked a lot more like a third world country again than a rising superpower. And that, I think, is uh, a potential vulnerability of his, because this is where the ideology comes into it. You know, he's staked his consolidation of power and all these things he's done on this idea that he's you know, ushering in this new era, a smart group of motivated people in the leadership could try to take that on. Um, I do not mm. see that happening anytime soon, but I do think it's a, a possible window. Interesting. And then would you expect, Chris, any any long-term political implications from COVID in China? Yeah, I think that that's the hardest thing to see. I guess the one that jumps immediately to mind would be that um, – it probably could and should prompt a reevaluation on, you know, information flows in the system and uh, the power grab that we have seen um, from Xi Jinping and, and especially, you know, this chairman of everything where nothing can happen unless it's signed off by him. And, you know, he's got a pretty full desk. But um, unfortunately, my guess is I expect actually the opposite, which will be a further tightening of mm. political control. Mm. Okay. So economics, what are we seeing in China now that things are opening up, now that people are going back to work, you know, are we seeing cases, outbreaks of cases in certain areas? Are we seeing life going back to normal or just people going back to work, but life staying sort of abnormal? So mm -hmm. what are we seeing in terms of how all that's playing out? Yeah, I, I think um, just on the cases issue, I find it very interesting, you know, and rightly so. There was a pretty strong presumption that there would be a second wave the minute, you know, they started to have uh, resume work activity. There's, I'm sure there have been, you know, small spikes here and there with cases and so on, but it seems to be working relatively well. Uh, and so that really hasn't happened. And I, I think that's very significant, actually, that that, that hasn't yeah. happened so far. Um, on the broader economic trends, I mean, in my mind, I think there are two fundamental tensions that the leadership is grappling with right now. The first one is clearly the tension between epidemic control and work resumption, right? And in my mind, the second one is this idea of what they call guarding against financial risk. This is this campaign they've been on for the last couple of years to de-risk the financial system versus their traditional stimulus playbook, right? Which is to open right. all the taps a la 2009. Um, on the first and tension- the, the, And the de-risking is, de is about lowering the level of debt at the end Correct. of the day. Correct. That's right. Yes. yes. Moving okay. the curve on debt, uh, or at least taming its growth. <laughs> they, they have, they're, uh, uh, they have modest ambitions on that. But on the first, <laughs> on the first tension, I think, you know, they're trying clearly to shift to work resumption, but the epidemic control issues keep getting in the way. Right. And so that's sort of very much frustrating their efforts, I think. And on the second one, I think we're just now seeing some signs that the traditional stimulus playbook might 
be, I won't say winning out, but, but you know, leaning to one side on that. We've seen some statements after a long period, frankly, of them being what I would consider very judicious, you know, compared to what other governments have done, um, starting to see some ideas of looser monetary policy, maybe more credit flowing. Um, and so that, you know, should be watched very carefully. And then I just think there's three big issues. You know, the first is that capacity utilization in firms is stuck at running about between, you know, the high 70s and low 80s percent. And the longer that goes on uh, into Q2, certainly, the more and more difficult it becomes, I think, for them to achieve anything other than negative growth for all of 2020. And obviously, that's very, very concerning for them. And this is particularly true in the private sector, um, because unlike state-owned enterprises, they're just unwilling to go to full capacity unless they have some sense there'll be demand for their product. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. huge. The second one is what to do with the growth target, uh, which is a huge debate, obviously, now as we're getting ready for this uh, legislative session next month to occur. Um, and then I think the last one is uh, some debate, which is very interesting, over what kind of stimulus should they be doing? And, you know, it's kind of similar to debates we're having here in our country. Uh as I mentioned, the traditional playbook is to go whole hog on infrastructure projects, bridges to nowhere, um, property, you know, uh, building, that sort of thing. Um, some are arguing this is not a typical financial crisis. It's more of an economic aneurysm, you know, and as such, the government should be thinking differently. And there is a lot of discussion about should we be handing direct cash to small and medium enterprises and individuals the interesting thing is I'm hearing that's become something of an ideological issue in the debate and mm-hmm. that more conservative elements of the party are saying, no, 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 that looks like the Western governments. We're trying to show the unique benefits of our system here. And the last thing we should be doing is, is mimicking theirs. So this this legislative session that they've now called, mm-hmm. um, will that help clarify all these questions? And will, oh, definitely. will we get a sense where economic policy is going after that? For sure. Um, we will get the growth target, which will be hugely important. And the trend line there right now, you know, the consensus view is what if they will announce one, it will be low, um, probably no higher than 3%. And even that could be um, considered ambitious. One interesting idea has been, could they... Um, announce a sort of um, multi-year growth target. So for 2020, don't announce a specific Mm. one for 2020, Mm. 2020, but a net 20 and 20 and 2021 target of say 5%, that would give them a lot more flexibility. So that seems to have gotten some some traction. Um, We'll also get very importantly, the fiscal deficit cap number. Um, A lot of attention has been focused on that. The consensus view seems to be it will go from about 2.8 last year to about 3.5% of GDP this year. But some, of course, have said much more than that would be good. And then, of course, for for we uh, security geeks, uh, you get the defense budget as well. And it'll just be very interesting Mm -hmm. to see what they do with that number. You know, one presumes, given the economic shock, it should be well below where it's been the last few years. Yeah. And anything else that the legislative session will will tell us? Well, I think, um, you know, there is always an opportunity when they hold the uh, annual legislative session for personnel changes, um, mainly ministerial changes. I suppose that's possible. I, I haven't seen, you know, there hasn't been a lot of rumors about that. But of course, we still have a full month or so to go before they actually convene the meeting. So that would be worth watching in terms of um, whether, uh, you know, that there some people would be held accountable uh, for the crisis and, and always, um, uh, always new 
opportunities there. And then secondly, um, there has been some suggestion uh, and some concern, I think, uh, and rightly so in the White House, that China might try to take advantage of what we might call the COVID COVID lull to uh, push in particular areas, um, Hong Kong being one, Taiwan, uh, South China Sea. And Hong Kong, you know, they're, they're still going back and forth about this national security legislation. You know, could the Chinese legislature try to push through that legislation, uh, taking advantage of this uh, this time? Uh, I think that's unlikely, but um, it could happen. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Johnson. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so China and the world. First question, do the Chinese see this as an opportunity to gain influence in the world? Most definitely. Yeah, I think so. And this is what I was um, referring to earlier with this idea of um, trying to change the narrative. Right. Um, and, and I think it's important to focus on that rather than what some have described as a global disinformation campaign, because the latter, in my mind, suggests uh, confidence and strength and, you know, trying to trying to push a particular agenda. I think they were desperate. I mean, you know, my sense is if you're sitting in the propaganda department and you're getting instructions from Xi Jinping and he's telling you, you know, look, you've got to find a way to change the the global narrative here. We're, we're dying. You know, we're looking like the source of a global pandemic. And you're thinking, how on earth am I going to do that? And then you see what happened in Europe, what's happened in the United States. And I think it's fair to say that there were uh, things that were not handled well uh, in both those places, especially given that, you know, uh, in our case in particular, we had at least two months, arguably, to be aware that this could be a big problem. Um, that has helped them a lot. And so I think they are definitely uh, seeking to use this as an opportunity to once again demonstrate um, the unique uh, awesomeness, shall we say, of, of their particular uh, governance model. So what are all of the the steps they're taking to try to take advantage of it besides the changing the narrative? Yeah, I think uh, clearly we're seeing some efforts that, you know, the term you hear most frequently is mask diplomacy or or, or things like that. There's no doubt, uh, I think if we look at the totality of information, that they were certainly um, trying to favor, you know, certain places with uh, gifts and aid or, or uh, getting medical supplies there. They've had a real challenge, though, uh, in terms of backlash, because uh, a lot of countries were so desperate that they were buying um, this equipment from uh, firms and China who were, you know, shady and, and weren't producing good equipment. And then that's caused an appropriate uh, backlash. We've seen them, I think, try to uh, further their campaign to um, increase their role, if not take a leading role in some areas in various multilateral organizations. Um, we've certainly seen them try to make sure that Taiwan, which has been somewhat of an inconvenient truth for them and that you have a, a democratic, ethnically Chinese society has handled the virus very well, make sure they don't get back into the WHO. You know, that's, there's a big dispute between the Chinese and Australia, for example, over that issue right now and other issues. Um, so, you know, we see them really operating on multiple fronts. And then this, this, 
you, you know, you hear a lot about this disinformation and this propaganda. You, you said a few minutes ago, you thought that was overplaying it a little bit. What's your sense of where that is and what they're doing? Well, I think, uh, again, I, my view is I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to uh, evaluate something that in my mind could be weakness and then call it strength. And so I think that's, that's very important. But the I second see. issue, the second issue is that, um, is that, you know, they're clearly making a major push here and they've handled it badly. And I think what's, what's most striking is, uh, you know, a lot, again, this could be uh, a very strong uh, implication, unintended consequence of, you know, sort of the way Xi Jinping is running the country. You know, he made a probably a flip comment, you know, some time ago, encouraging his diplomats to show more fighting spirit. And this has led to, you know, the wolf warrior diplomat, uh, Zhao Lijian, and a whole bunch like him uh, spewing this stuff out over Twitter, questioning the origins of the disease and so on. And there's no doubt that that stuff has backfired on them. And then I think, you know, we have seen, there's no doubt there's been some things that look eerily similar to some of what the Russians were doing in, in 2016 in terms of bots and, you know, reforwarding things and false Facebook accounts and so on. I, my assessment, I'm not a technical expert, but my assessment is it's not anywhere near on the scale of, of Russia's disinformation efforts, but the Chinese haven't traditionally done that kind of stuff. So that is a little trouble. And, and, and Chris, this is a little off topic, but do you see, is there anything that leads you to believe that the Chinese may be trying to influence the 2020 election here as the Russians did in 2016? I haven't seen anything that would uh, convince me of that. I mean, I think they are certainly trying to, um, you know, influence where they can. They have a number of platforms that they use to try to, um, you know, uh, manage opinion in the Chinese, in the ethnic Chinese community in the U.S. Certainly, um, certainly they're trying to use some of their leverage uh, over the business community to, you know, uh, do certain things. But, you know, we saw the president come out the other day, I believe, and say that, um, you know, he believes the Chinese uh, want him to lose the election. I, I personally haven't seen anything uh, that would suggest to me that that's uh, where their attitude is at this point. If they had a choice here, which candidate would they choose? You know, with Trump, they have great disarray here, but they also have they also have somebody who has taken a yardstick to them, right, um, on a number of issues. With Biden, they'd get more stability, but they'd also they'd get a softer approach. So, did you have a sense on who they would choose? My sense is, uh, I think maybe they've to some degree sort of come out as a wash now. I, I, I think early in the contest. On the Democrat side, uh, their uh, preference would have been for Joe Biden because they have a lot of familiarity with him. Um, as Vice President, former Vice President Biden has said, uh, he spent a great deal of time with Xi Jinping when Xi Jinping was the Vice President of China, and he was getting ready to take over the presidency. Um, and you know, he is a sort of more free trade, non-tariff touting, you know, kind kind of guy. But then I think there was an assessment early on that he's got no chance. Um, so I guess, you know, while Trump is erratic, as you pointed out, um, he is the devil we know. And we think, you know, generally speaking, we know how to handle this guy. And as you pointed out, the, the upside for them is global disarray from from a lack of U.S. leadership. Um, and they certainly have been exploiting that. But then now Biden emerges, you know, it seems from the process. And so now I, I'm guessing they're wondering, you know, what's the best outcome for them. But my guess is they probably feel it will be OK one way or the other. So let's go back to this this issue of them trying to use COVID-19 as an opportunity to expand their influence. Um, uh -huh. Do you think they think they're being effective here? 
I think it's a mixed bag. I, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, as I was mentioning earlier, their, their system has unique yardsticks by which they measure success. So the, in other words, the, they only have a certain playbook and they can't really exceed it. I, I think the key factor in all of this in terms of effectiveness will be before this kind of the advent of the Xi Jinping era and this this sort of stronger, more forward-leaning China, when they would make mistakes, uh, they would learn from them and we yeah. would see them adjust their behavior. They were very good at that for many years. Um, that has not been the case over the last eight plus years. Um, and uh, it will be interesting to see in this instance if they're able to do that. I haven't seen much indication of it so far, uh, but I think it will be important. And then I think the other thing in terms of effectiveness that will be very telling is that given the head start they have on the rest of the world, um, there is a lot of pushback. We see it in Europe. We see it here, you know, and so on. Um, if, however, their economy gets on a pretty good footing much sooner than the global economies and they start demanding product from economies that are just starting to reopen, you know, that could change a lot of people's too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things to think about is emerging markets and, you know, what, what yes. is going to be what is going to be a debt and currency crisis in emerging markets? And, you know, is the IMF and World Bank going to have enough funds to deal with that? And then you start looking around the world and who does, and it's the yeah. Chinese, right? That that may end up giving them much more influence than than mask diplomacy. Definitely. I, I think so. And And, you know, we're already seeing a lot of conversation about, um, you know, canceling or suspending debt payments with Africa. There's a lot of discussion now about what they're going to do with various BRI programs. I mean, there I don't, Belt and Road Initiative uh, programs, I, I don't think they're, they're going to be able to write off the loans, um, but they might accept something where they get the principal payment over whatever very long timeline and some minimal uh, percentage of interest. So it's a huge opportunity for them. You know, uh, they I hear that there's a lot of discussion about thinking about it, about the way they played the financial, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, right, where everyone expected them to devalue. They didn't. And that was remembered for a long time right, in terms of giving right. them sort of soft power in the region. Right. And I guess the other advantage of stimulus, you know, um, in in China is not only the domestic benefit of it, but the benefit you get from pulling other economies along with you. For sure. Yeah. And having, I mean, if you're and, buying, if you're yep. look at commodity prices right now, <laughs> they're crashing. And so if they start building a lot of infrastructure projects, they need commodities to do so. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's finish up with, with maybe the most interesting piece here, which is the U.S.-China relationship, you know, it feels, it feels, you know, to a non-China expert that we're in a bit of a death spiral here. What's your sense? Mm -hmm. It feels like it to a China expert, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, look, I would say I, it's fair to say that this has definitely been a roller coaster ride of recents, uh, but the direction of travel doesn't seem particularly great, uh, and especially over the last week. Um, we had what seemed like a notional truce uh, when Presidents Trump and Xi had a phone call now about three and a half, four weeks ago, um, and uh, it seemed that the exchange basically uh, revolved around, okay, both sides need to tone down this rhetoric, you know, on their side questioning the origin, on our side calling it the Wuhan virus. And that seemed to work for a little bit. And there was some speculation that the two sides had decided to see if they couldn't put out some kind of joint statement on cooperation on COVID in general. Well, that was three plus weeks, maybe a month ago now. The statement still hasn't emerged. It might emerge, but it hasn't. And if we can't work 
together on something as simple as what presumably is a fairly anodyne statement, then it does, you know, uh, raise questions about how we're going to talk about thorny IP issues and so on. And then I think just in general, within the U.S. administration, from what I'm seeing and hearing, there seem to be two streams, I guess, or two channels uh, in the administration. Uh, the first is, I think, what we might call the campaign team, and they clearly are seeing indications from polling and and just response to ads that they're making, such as this, you know, hashtag Beijing Biden movement and so on, um, that this has legs and could help the president win re-election. And I think, you know, Trump is very much on board, you know, with that uh, that stream of thinking. The other is what I would call um, uh, the sort of uh, decoupling 2.0 camp. And here I think it's mainly the administration hawks like Secretary Pompeo, uh, National Security Advisor O'Brien and his deputy Matt Pottinger, um, the, these sort of folks. And here I think, you know, going back to the very early days of the administration when Steve Bannon was around and so on, there was a serious effort to what uh, to produce what I may call sort of um, speedier, slow-moving decoupling, right? You know, that's that's kind of the, what you can really do in, in any realistic time frame. And, you know, they put it up the flagpole, the economic team or advisors seemed to kind of win out, it went nowhere. I think there is a group that sees uh, coronavirus and the implications of that for the U.S. as an opportunity to try that again, and they're working mm-hmm. very hard. So the real important question then, I think, becomes... Is there are there distinguishable differences between these two camps? In other words, for the president, is it just uh, about you know a re-election effort and so on, or is he having some kind of a change of heart in terms of how he sees this? And I will say that in the last week or so, I think we're seeing more signs that these two tracks are converging. You know, in other words, whatever distinguishable distance differences were there before are now no longer there, and I think that's a bit troubling. Yeah, and then your assessment, Chris, of the potential impact long-term on the relationship from COVID? Yeah, I I think, you know, it it doesn't bode well. I mean, one of the things that was really challenging was that we never really got the chance after the phase one trade deal was agreed uh, late last year, uh, we never really got the chance to see if there could be any afterglow, if you will, from that, because we basically went from that almost directly into COVID and COVID response. And so that has made things more difficult. I think when we eventually are able to resume some kind of functioning um, economic and trade dialogue uh, with the Chinese, um, all of this will be there as a backdrop, right? And so I think that makes those conversations potentially more difficult. I mean, one bright spot, I think, has been it does seem that Ambassador Lighthizer at USTR, he really seems to have had the only functioning channel, if you will, um, mm. you know, of US-China communication. You know, the State Department basically is not talking to its counterpart, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and so there has seemed to have been an effort to kind of silo off the economic relationship. So let's see if that can survive, you know, when we do get back to some sort of a nodal channel. Um, if, if not, I think it's going to be really messy. And, and the dynamics of the campaign, I mean, you know, China has featured prominently in the last several U.S. election campaigns, but usually it's one side or the other going after the Chinese. I think it's going to be very hard for uh, Mr. Biden to, uh, to avoid having to get on that train as well, you know, and that can make things really bumpy. Right. And just remind us, Chris, of, of your sense of where we're headed over the longer term with the Chinese. You know, I think it's probably toward some kind of, you know, very uncomfortable, you know, slow motion decoupling. I I think that's really where we're going. Um, Certainly, we continue to see a series of 
of you know certain measures coming out of the Commerce Department. There was just one uh, last week um, trying to tackle the issue of civil military integration, as it's called in China, i.e., you know, technology that goes to notionally civilian companies in China, but those companies have some interaction with the Chinese military. You know, arguably that's a very real concern, um, but obviously it will have a serious impact on a lot of U.S. companies because they will now either need to apply for licenses or they may just not be able to sell those products to those Chinese companies anymore. Um, there is this uh, apparent directive that's working its way through the system that would seek to sever the link between uh, important uh, foreign semiconductor makers like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor and Huawei in China. Right. So right. you can kind of see the, the trend line going here. And I expect that to continue. And I think if there is a change of administration, it, it might look a little different. It might take a little longer, but um, it does seem that a lot of these trends are, are becoming hardwired, which is uh, disappointing. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It is it is always fantastic to have you on the show. You are incredibly insightful. And I continue to call you the, the best China analyst um, inside or outside of government. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.